There will be a Bible near you if you didn't bring one with you, and I'd love for you to open it, please, in Revelation chapter 5, because we'll be reading 14 verses from the fifth chapter of Revelation this morning, and I want to make sure before we actually begin, I want to make sure that you have God's Word open in front of you. Revelation chapter 5, this most famous book, most misunderstood and certainly compelling book of Revelation. I'll explain to you its original purpose before we look into this chapter, but first, I've learned from the first two services, we have three services if you're new to Cross Point. We meet on Saturday in a new service at 5.30 in the afternoon, on Sunday mornings at 9, and as you may know, we meet at 10.30 as well. Welcome to what I'm sure you'll agree is the best service of the weekend. True? All right. No favorites. Pastor shouldn't play favorites. Has it ever occurred to you that life would be a lot more interesting and easier if it came with the soundtrack? You know, if you could hear the, the, the tune of your life change and a creepy rumbling cello started in all by itself, maybe that would not be the time to go into the dark garage, right? Movies kind of telegraph what's happening by the soundtrack. In fact, I don't know if you've ever muted the sound and watched one of your favorite, most emotional scenes with no sound at all. It makes a huge difference. You take the famous Vader march as, as composed by John Williams out of Star Wars, and Darth Vader's just a big nerd walking around in a shiny suit. You know the Vader march? You may not know that's what they called it, but it goes like this. Bum, 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 bum. That's not the good guy coming, right? <laughs> Those are the bad guys. That is raw imperial power going to crush these poor little rebels. You take the swelling strings out of the death of William Wallace or one of his famous battle scenes, and the emotion just drops right out of it. Who's the guy that writes all the romantic movies? Nicholas Sparks? Is that, is that the guy? I wouldn't know. That's why I'm asking. I <laughs> kindly do not debit my man card, right? But I have been at the theater when one of those movies is playing, and the population, which is 95% women and a few guys who really love their girlfriends and wives, right, come out and everybody's crying. I promise you, not having seen it, you take the swelling strings out of that last scene and it's still sad, but it doesn't tear you up. Soundtracks count for a lot. And the reason for that is the movie makers and the storytellers, if they have audio and video to work with, they're trying to pull you into the story. They're trying to communicate in all senses. Stories are compelling. Even a 22-minute sitcom quickly draws people in because we're wired for stories. I have a family member who's a data scientist, and he's one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. But he says that people aren't wired for data. Our brains don't process numbers nearly as well as they do stories. And in fact, the reason I'm telling you all this is I think that's how we see our lives unfolding. You're consciously writing a story. When you get up in the morning, gather yourself, and in my case, find the coffee, then you 
open the door to your house and you go out and there is always this sense of, of adventure, of uncertainty, but you're going out to write a better story. Nobody's trying to write a tragedy. We fear the plot twists that will plunge us into sadness and sorrow, but we're all trying to write a story worth, worth reading. You want your life to count for something. We think of our lives as seasons and chapters when things don't go as planned. We have this sense of an unfolding drama, a narrative that we're writing together, and by this point I should be out of this chapter and writing the next one. I've been thinking a lot about story and why we're wired to think that way, and the reason is God's a storyteller. He is quite literally the history maker as someone, it's a little bit cliche and a little bit corny, but someone correctly observed that history is simply His story. That's why Scripture, as intimidating as this big book can be, 1,189 chapters written in three different languages by some 40 different people across 1,400 years, astonishingly, miraculously, it tells one cohesive story beginning to end. With terrible conflict and tension and loss and sacrifice, and you don't need the soundtrack You can see the pain and the suffering and the joy and everything that God has woven into our lives as He writes the story. It's very obviously a story. In fact, you know how, like all good stories, you know, if you've gone to a good movie, they don't take about 18 minutes to get your interest. The bad guy is really, really bad very early. The good guy is in trouble right off from the start. God, who's writing history and then chose through this amazing vehicle to tell us who He is and what He's doing, begins human history with this account. Maybe you've read it. It says, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the story begins. In 1,189 chapters in the Bible, by the third chapter, you've already met the enemy, which is sin. Sin and selfishness have corrupted and stained the first human family. The first marriage is already in trouble and divided. Man has grown distrustful and fearful, both of God and his fellow man. In fact, the first sibling rivalry doesn't end with an argument, it ends with murder. And if you read the unfolding human history, it's so dark. I love it when people start reading, especially the first part of the Bible for themselves. They say, my goodness, this is dark stuff. I had no idea this was all in here. Yes, because it's telling you the truth of the story that God is writing. And if you patiently read through the end of it, you'll discover that it doesn't end in harps and clouds and a sunshine and sunshine somewhere. It ends in a new heaven and a new earth when God makes all things new. But could I give you as a premise that almost everybody in America, including a lot of Christians, are living in their conscious pursuit of their lives as they choose to write the story of their lives. They're living for a story that is much too small, that is not in the end very meaningful, that will not make that much difference, that is set really at odds with what God is doing in the world He made. If you follow my concept, 
If the average American family in 2017 is writing the story of their lives, what would you entitle some of the chapters? What are some of the things that really matter to an American life now? What would those chapters be called? First home. What else? Parenting. Pleasure, someone said. Money. I can't really hear you. You're either speaking at the same time or I'm not listening that well. And most people are settling for gifts that God has given and missing God Himself. Let me propose to you that you should live for a much larger story. And that you can do so because of the end of God's revelation. See, God didn't leave a cliffhanger. There is no sequel to the Bible. He tells you in advance how it's all going to wrap up. In fact, when you're reading Revelation, you're reading future history. Look with me, please, to Revelation chapter 5 now. And understand that the book of Revelation has a specific time when it was given to John. John, John, Jesus' most beloved disciple, has been exiled He's on a Roman penal colony you can visit today, a little rocky island called Patmos off the coast of Turkey. It was a place where the empire sent people sometimes that they wanted no further trouble from but didn't care enough to kill. And that's where John is. He writes this final book of the Bible in what is almost certainly his ripe old age. And he has a lifetime of painful memories because of the disciples He is the only one who will not die of natural causes. He says in the very beginning of the book, as he writes to the first people who would read it, that he is a partner with them in tribulation. He is their fellow sufferer, in other words. And John is in fellowship on a Sunday morning. He's having church alone, apparently, seeking the Lord as you and I might. And Jesus visits John one more time and gives him this revelation, which means an unveiling. Jesus pulls the curtain back, if you will, on future history and shows John how it's all going to wrap up. And he begins with what John already knows about Jesus. He gives him in the first few chapters a message to specific congregations, ancient churches, but not that different from our own with pastors and people and trouble and joys and failures. And each one of the leaders of those churches receive a specific message for their congregation. And then in the fourth chapter, and this is what makes Revelation famous, John is shown the future. Look in Revelation 4 verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now John is being shown the throne room of heaven and he is going to be shown the future. From the fourth chapter until the last chapter, John is shown things that have not yet occurred. And it's filled with frightening images. 
images that if you try to see them, and I encourage you to do so, if you try to visualize the details that John is giving you, certainly these would have been awe-inspiring as they were to him, frightening things to see. And he gets a glimpse before all the judgments begin on the earth, before the seals are opened and all the trouble begins on earth. Joan is shown first the throne room of God. He's shown 24 elders, which likely represent those who Jesus will save, and four majestic angelic creatures, which are probably first described by Ezekiel in his prophecy some 700 years earlier. Can't be certain of every single image, but it means at least this much, since this is given to John for others to read and understand. Anytime we start with the book of any book of the Bible, including this one, we have to begin with what the first reader would have known from these images and from these words. It's like if you find a letter that I've written my wife and it says, Dearest Sharice, you can't legitimately read that love letter thinking that I'm actually a CIA spy and Sharice is the code name for my handler. Okay? That's fiction and fantasy. All the literature of the Bible, all of its stories and letters, and in this case, prophecy, are written with an original audience in mind, so we have to start with what John would have known and seen from these symbols. We can't be absolutely certain what every single one of them means in total detail, but starting with him and what he would have understood, we can be certain and we can most certainly get the message. And what John is being shown in the middle of his trial and his trouble and his persecution as the end of history, and believe me, it's going to end well. Look in Revelation 5 verse 1 now and you'll see what I mean. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, that's God, who you and I call God the Father. A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And John would have had a reference in his day for what that was. In his culture, the more important a document was, the more seals they placed upon it. And putting what we're told together, this appears to be, if you will, the title deed to the world. Once these seals that John sees around this document in God's hand begin to open, that triggers the rest of the book of Revelation. That ends human history. That consummates what God has been trying to do. And John has that explained to him, not with so many words, but with this inspiring picture of God holding the deed to everything that He had made the story's not done and the seals have not been opened. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who is worthy? Who can bring an end to human history? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, John's telling you a real-life experience. His tears may surprise you, but if you think about what he has endured for Jesus, perhaps it won't be as surprising. 
if what Scripture tells us about John and what early church history tells us about him can be trusted, both the history that follows the Bible and all that we see of John's life in Scripture. You would have been looking very likely at a man weathered with age, persecution, and suffering. There was at least one brutal attempt on John's life, according to church history, that should have killed him, but they were unsuccessful. God's providentially spared him. You're looking at a, someone who was called as a very young man, perhaps even a teenager, away from the nets to follow Jesus, who found himself embroiled in the redemptive work of Jesus that took him into all kinds of different places, and most importantly, he saw his friends scattered and killed one by one. He saw ordinary Christians hounded unto prison and death by the Roman Empire. And now, John, through these images, understand that the consummation, the happy end to human history is at hand, and nobody worthy can be found to write the end of the story. So he cries. Maybe in what you've seen in life and maybe in what you've seen on your TV screens, these last few troubled weeks of our nation's life, maybe you've watched the news and cried a little bit yourself. Whether it's Charlottesville or Barcelona or the quiet everyday violence in Southern California and all the suffering that seeps out of so many ordinary homes that will never be in the news, but when your best friend finally breaks down over coffee and tells you what's really happening in his or her life, and you've seen those things, maybe the big stories that catch all the headlines, or you've heard the quiet stories, the heartbreaking trouble in which there's no human help that can be offered to someone, and maybe you've cried a little bit, and you felt what John was feeling. Is this ever going to end? Have we learned nothing? Is this sort of nonsense, foolishness, and evil based on simple human hatred in something as nonsensical as a different skin color, is this really still who we are? Is this still what's happening? And John has seen evil and human hatred on a scale that you cannot even begin to imagine, including the death of the Son of God, Jesus Himself. So he weeps and loudly and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And now we're thrown back into the Old Testament. And John would have recognized those titles. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's Jesus. He's also the root of David. He gave life to David, and he is also one of David's descendants, and he's told that man, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered. And no one else can, but he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I wanted you to have your Bible open so that you can look carefully at phrases like that. Jesus has described and pictured as a lamb that has been slaughtered, but is still, did you notice? This lamb has been killed, but what's it doing? It's standing. That's the gospel in a single word picture. 
See, when an animal is slaughtered, it doesn't stay on its feet. It lies over pitifully, blood pouring from its wounds, and it dies, and that's it. Jesus is pictured, and the Greek word is very picturesque. It actually speaks of a little defenseless lamb. Not a ram, not even a big sheep, a little defenseless animal that has been used for sacrifice, perhaps, in the temple. And it bears in its body the wounds of ritual slaughter, but there's something miraculous about it. Even though the wounds say it has been killed, it's standing. And that's the story of Jesus. That's His claim to deity, and that's the reason for your salvation in a single word picture. Jesus died for sin, but He didn't stay dead. He promised His entire ministry, and even His disciples had a hard time believing it, that He was going to die, but that He was going to rise from the grave. And John has shown more things about Jesus, also drawn for the Old Testament, that make this little lamb an awe-inspiring creature. Look, it says, standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, those represent power in the Old Testament. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. What are these pictures mean? That Jesus is all-powerful and all-knowing. In other words, He is completely in charge. He is sovereign. That's why He is going to hasten the end of history. That's why He's going to put to an end all the evil that is happening in the earth. And one of the most awe-inspiring thoughts to me in all of Scripture is that when you see Jesus, the Son of God who became a man to live in your place so that you could have forgiveness of sins and enjoy God forever, when you actually see Him, He will still have the wounds that caused His death in the first place. I know that's true because there was a famous disciple that doubted that Jesus could come back from the dead. Do you remember his name? Famous Doubting Thomas. See, Thomas lived in the first century under the Roman Empire just like everybody else, and he knew that Roman soldiers choosing to put a man to death never failed. He saw the magnitude of the wounds and the torture that Jesus was subjected to. That's why he said, I don't buy it. And unless I can see and touch the wounds, I don't believe. So Jesus appeared to him and showed him the very wounds that the Romans had left on his body. And when you see him, you'll see him that way. And he'll be alive and powerful and all-knowing as he's pictured here and yet bear for the rest of eternity the marks that your salvation and the forgiveness of your sin cost him. As a constant reminder, any time you look at Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth, you'll be reminded how much he loved you. So John, now encouraged, I'm sure, sees Jesus do something spectacular. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now you've got these picture of these awe-inspiring beings who would have scared John to death themselves, likely. They're worshiping Jesus with instruments drawn from the worship of the Old Testament. And notice this little detail. They are bringing golden bowls full of incense, again, drawn from Old Testament worship. But this incense contains something. This incense represents, did you notice the end, the last phrase of verse 8? What is it? 
the prayers of the saints. Who are the saints? You. Ordinary Christians. I'm so glad that little detail is in God's revelation because you know what that tells me? It tells me that the ordinary prayers of ordinary Christians are precious to God. They're not lost out into space. Maybe you're like me. Maybe sometimes you've prayed and wondered if anything has happened at all. You ever have that experience? I'm very honest. Sometimes I've prayed and I've asked myself seriously, did I actually do anything just now? Is he listening? At the end of Revelation, again, through awe-inspiring imagery that you have to think your way through, you're being told, Mom, that your prayers for your wayward children matter a great deal to God. They're gathered up before Him. They're brought to Him as fragrant worship. In other words, the ordinary prayers of ordinary Christians in a world filled with suffering so matter so much to God, they are brought to Him and they make a beautiful, fragrant offering to Him. Dad, if you feel, as I often do, an insufficient husband and father, and you say to your heavenly Father, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. I'm not good enough for this. Two things about that. One, you're right. And that's exactly, at that point of humility, is exactly when the grace and the favor of God begin to go in your favor and lift you up out of that trial. But those prayers are not lost. They're gathered, and ultimately, they're going to be answered. And these creatures, these 24 elders who likely represent those who Jesus has saved, were told in verse 9, sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Here's why. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Don't forget that, please. And you have made them, these people you have rescued from all the corners of the earth, you have made them a kingdom because now they're sons and daughters of the king. You've made them priests to our God because they will ever be before you. That's what a priest did, representing people to God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne. Now the soundtrack, if we were scoring this, would get enormously, enormously big. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. In other words, John says, I can't count them. Too many to number. And those angels sang with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, everything God made, sang, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Why should you live for a bigger story? Why shouldn't you be satisfied with living in a story of your own making? Revelation chapter 5, which begins to tell me the end of the story, gives me three reasons. First and most, Jesus conquered death. 
That's why he's pictured as a lamb who has been killed but is standing and powerful and alive and all-knowing and receiving eventually worship from every single thing that God has ever made because he conquered the final enemy that is death. When you think about your life, isn't the main thing you're trying to do at the most basic level, aren't you really just trying to stay alive? Isn't that what it boils down to? If not, why not have the double bacon cheeseburger every day, right? (laughs) I was in the St. Louis airport this week, and I saw that Burger King, at least in Missouri, now offers cheeseburgers for breakfast. And I thought to myself, no, thank you. I'd like to live a little bit longer than that. I'm not going to do that. That's why you look both ways. That's why you put on your seatbelt. You want to live. The great enemy is death. That's what we fear for ourselves. That's why we fear for others. That's why our heart stops a little bit when certain people who we know have been sick or have been injured call and we see their number on the caller ID. Our breath catches a little bit because the final enemy that is always stalking every human being on earth is death. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus killed death. He conquered death by death. What a story. What a Savior. He died so that you wouldn't have to, so that you could have instead eternal life, so that when the worst thing that could ever happen to you, which is you physically die on this earth, He will take that moment of grieving and pain for others and that agony for you in in your last physical moments. He'll turn all of that to eternal life. And when you see Him, you won't regret anything. You see, sometimes we're told As Christians, we're very, very poor comforters to people. As a pastor, I've been to more funerals probably than most people. And sometimes I'll see a sweet person who loves the Lord at the casket, mourning their loved one and crying their eyes out, and some well-meaning blockhead will put his arm around that person and say, don't cry. You ever receive that kind of comfort? They mean well, but it's just bad advice. It's impossible to follow. Jesus wept in front of the tomb of His friend Lazarus. We're allowed to grieve. The absence of life, the separation of death is painful. The gospel never says that it isn't. The Bible calls death an enemy, but it tells you the end of the story. Death doesn't have the final word. Paul wrote to a group of ordinary Christians in Thessalonica, and he said to them, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we cry. Yes, we are plunged into sorrow, but never without hope because, because of Jesus, death will never have the last word. Jesus conquered death. That's why he's pictured as a sacrificial lamb that is somehow victorious and all-knowing. That's why we're made this beautiful promise at the end of Revelation. Keep your place, but look over with me in Revelation 21, please, verse 3. A final voice from the throne echoes in 21, verse 3. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. In other words, the unapproachable God, who is so holy, so just, so different from His creation, will be right with us. And so close, it says in verse 4, that He, God, 
not an angel, God Himself. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that can only happen. God can only bring you close as a father does his little frightened, crying children and dry your tears for one reason, because his son, the sacrificial lamb, conquered death and put it out of the way. That's why you can live in God's story with full confidence that it's going to end well. Also, I'm told in Revelation chapter 5 that Jesus is going to save people from every nation. Look in verse 9. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's another word picture from John's time when people were bought out of the slave market. We were once slaves to sin. People still today are slaves to sin. They end up doing things that they hate. They hate it while they're doing it. They hate at the consequence that's coming because of it, and yet they cannot stop. That is what sin does. It enslaves people. It imprisons people in what one of my professors called of every human culture a prison of disobedience. And Jesus walks into every one of those individual cells, the American cell, the Mexican cell, the Korean cell, all these different cultures and ways of living that we've all created that keep us in different ways away from God and prisons of our own individual making. Jesus walks into everyone, buys people back out of that slavery, and we're told they come from every tribe and language and people and nation. All you need to know about racism is in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. What the Son of God was doing when He died on the cross was laying His life down from every people group, every language, every culture that mankind would ever devise. That's why my Sunday school teacher was right to teach me that old, old song, Jesus loves the little children. Do you know the second line? All the children of the world, all of them, every single one of them. And hatred because someone's skin color is a little bit different than yours is just nonsensical evil rooted in Genesis 3 when sin came into the world and ruined everything. Jesus is at work to reverse the effect of that curse. And that brings me, not only gives me this big cosmic, big picture view, it also tells me how to view my neighbors. And maybe they're the same color as I am, but there's things about them that irritate me. Views that they hold that I find terrible. And I look into the throne room of God and I see Jesus being worshipped because He died for all kinds of people and He will ransom people from all kinds of ideologies that have kept people in their godlessness away from their Creator. See, he will save people from every nation. That means that there's hope for the people you, are mo you have the most trouble with right now. I'll never forget, many years ago, he remains a friend, but it was his immaturity and perhaps some of his own personal story speaking. I was confronted by a friend just outside the doors of his church who was very, very upset that we were sending missionaries to certain parts of the world. 
And if you can understand a picture of Jesus being celebrated and praised in worship because He is the one who has ransomed people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue and culture, you'll know what to do with people who are, look different and think differently than you do. He died for all. He loves us all. And it also tells us that none of these people can save themselves. They're all in need of a Savior, but the one who conquered death is going to save people from every nation, and finally, and best of all, and that's what brings this chapter to this rousing crescendo, this battle, the battle we're in right now, is going to end in worship. And John hears a chorus growing with a small group of these impressive creatures in the throne room growing throughout all of creation until everyone is saying at the end in verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This makes all the difference. You're in a battle right now if you're trying to follow Jesus. And perhaps in your lifetime, it's never been harder. And if you're a young person living in the world today, there's nothing in our current culture that is encouraging you to be a public, bold, outspoken, loving Christian. The message you're being given is just have your private beliefs and shut up about it, will you? And that brings pressure. And for people, that brings tears. But I have good news for you. Battle doesn't end in tears. It ends in worship. John wept, but only for a moment until he understood the full worth of Jesus. So whatever you're crying about today as a Christian, if you understand a little bit of what John meant when he called other Christians partners in tribulation, partners in trouble, you need to hear what Revelation 5 is meant to communicate to you that you can sacrifice and love and give and serve for Jesus, and it may not go terribly well. You may not see much blessing. You may not get much applause. Remember where John is. He's in exile on a little chunk of rock out in the middle of nowhere, baking in the heat, remembering his dead friends. And that's why Jesus gave him this message, first for himself and then for all the readers, all the Christians who would ever suffer and, endure and wonder how it was all going to end to tell them this single thing. In this story, God wins in the end. So you can pray with confidence even when you're not certain that you've been heard. You can watch your TV and be resentful for a moment and then realize the end of the story that you shouldn't be motivated to anger because the anger of man, we're told, does not produce the righteousness of man. The best thing you can do if you're troubled by the world today is to make that, make you turn to prayer and ask God, God, I'm in the story. You've chosen to give me life and health and resources and friendships and a church family and your word. You've put me in this story in this time of history. And I don't know when it's going to end, but I know how it's going to end. So help me live with love and faith and hope right now. Let me live with confidence that I know how the battle's going to end. It's not going to end with tears and defeat. It's going to end in glory and worship and song and celebration because God wins in the end. What if happens to Christians when they're not certain of the outcome? They pull back. They grow timid. 
They grow stingy with their time and money and their service. They become selfish, in other words. They become fearful and resentful of other people and resentful of the causes of their pain and their discomfort. Could I just tell you, beginning with Revelation chapter 5, look at the end of the story. If you know Jesus, you're on the winning side. The outcome's never been in doubt. This isn't a sporting event where you're not entirely sure how, no matter how much you love one of the sides, which one's going to win. This story's already been written. You're reading future history. Our part is to live in it boldly and with confidence, knowing that God wins in the end. Will you pray with me, please? Let's turn to the Lord right now, and let me start first with the people who matter most in this room, and let me ask you, I've just explained to you one of the most complex passages in all of Scripture, and maybe you didn't understand it all. Candidly, I don't understand the depth of Revelation chapter 5, so let's ask a more basic question. Are you sure you're okay with God? Are you at peace with Him? You're trying to live just like the rest of us, but if God called you to an account at the end of your life, if the account had to be given today, are you absolutely certain that your sins are forgiven, that you're in His family, that this is your good future? If not, Jesus died to give people that kind of peace and that kind of assurance. If you'll simply turn from your sin, if you'll say to Him, Jesus, I'm sorry, I don't know everything, but I know this much. I know I've sinned, and I know I need a Savior. And you'll turn to Him and ask Him to save you. He will. He's done that for people this week. He can do it for you. Jesus made a promise. If anyone comes to Him, He will by no means cast him out. So, could I ask you just very directly and personally, if you're not certain of your security, your salvation in Christ, could I ask you to identify that this morning by simply putting your hand up? Anyone like that that would say, I'm not sure, but I'd like to be? If that's your situation, would you please raise your hand? Anyone like that? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I see that. Anyone else? For those who raised their hand, maybe you who didn't, could I invite you in simple humility and trust to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, please save me. I'm a sinner. You're a Savior. I get it. I give up. Save me. Make me part of your family. If you do that this morning, would you fill out a card and let us know that you've done that? We want to be along with you in those first steps of growth. Most of the people in this room remember that day when they finally trusted Jesus as Savior. And all of us, I can remember the people who helped me take my first steps. They mean the world to me. We want to help you grow to full maturity so that you can live this beautiful life that Jesus died to give you. And the majority of people here are already walking with Jesus. Can I just ask you honestly, have you been living with more resentment than hope? Have you been acting and feeling and choosing like everything's lost and everything stinks and there's no hope for the world? Look at the end of the book. 
we're on the winning side. God wins, and by His grace, we win with Him. We'll reign with Him someday in the new heaven and the new earth. What a picture. What a promise. Can I give you a moment to lay down those resentments and say, God, forgive me, even though I know you, I've gotten as upset and bitter and worked up as anybody else. Help me to live with faith, hope, and love. Help me to see my neighbors again as people who are in need of you. They don't need persuading. They don't need changing as much as they need you. Father, do your work as only you can. Thank you for these in every service who are trying to be sure of their relationship with you. I pray that they would let us know who they are and we would be able to help. And most of all, Lord, that you would save in this very diverse church people from all kinds of different nations and languages, that from us you would gather part of this great crowd, and together, Lord, we'll celebrate you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.